16, 17. <laughs> I, can, I can still count that high. I've got that many fingers and toes. I haven't oh, lost sure. any, so I'm still good. Are you sure All right. I've seen your cooking. This is true, but I haven't cut anything off yet. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place where we put the fun in dysfunction. So without further <laughs> ado, we are going to introduce our guest, Miss Alma Alexander. Uh, can you introduce yourself to the listeners and viewers of our show? Hi, um, I'm Alma Alexander, and um, I write. Um, I basically got, um, I, I saw an interview that Ursula Le Guin did a long time ago, and somebody asked her, what would you be if you weren't a writer? And she said, succinctly, dead. And I basically agree with that. Um, so um, it's one of those things that um, people ask me a lot in, in various written interviews when did you decide you wanted to be a writer and my answer to that is i didn't decide when i wanted to be a writer i was one i just basically grew up into the ability to hold a pencil and scribble down words on a page but before that i told lies for a living so i've always told stories that's a good thing to be <laughs> so uh the next part of the introduction dear listeners how we first met them so uh, many of you know that I spent two years in the deserts of Mesopotamia playing with camels. I know Doc is rolling her eyes again, but I've never told anyone this. But my third tour, I went with a secret government agency seeking to overthrow the an Illuminati cabal bent on global domination. Uh, I do believe that Doc might have been part of that cabal, but she will not confirm nor deny. I'm just saying. You really need to get your meds tested again. <laughs> her disappearance from the U.S. around that time, I'm just saying it was a little sketchy, but... We had to protect the world from this Illuminati threat. So I met my supervisory agent, Miss Alma, at the base of the Tower of Babel, which if you didn't know, is actually in Iraq. And she led me to meet our contact over at the Ziggurat of Ur. And together we were able to thwart this nefarious plot. And I'm just saying, coincidentally, Doc came back to the US at that time. Uh, luckily, Ishtar guided our hands and we were able to uh, do so with minimal casualties. So that is how uh, Alma and I met. But what about you, Doc? Uh, I think we met through an email uh, a friend recommended her and we talked and so that's what happened. I don't need a fancy story because my meds are adjusted, right? <laughs> meds, meds. Isn't that what the fireballs are for? Yes, I like fireballs. They're fun. Okay, so on to I'm the just saying, Alma probably doesn't want you working in her lab with those fireballs. You know what? It's all cool. If you wanted to do it in the fume hood, that's what it's for. So, uh, on to the religion question. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Babylon 5. Nice choice. Okay, I like that one. That's sometimes on there. We mix them up. But uh, when I read your bio with some of your history of what you've read, I thought we had to go back to the originals because that would be most appropriate for you. So... The uh, now we go on to the fantasy ones Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Potterverse. Oh, that one's easy Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is really it's hard to beat Lord of the Rings, like as much as Game of Thrones is. I think Potterverse is really like if you're under the age of 20 or maybe it's 30 now. Uh, like Potterverse seems to be a, a big one, but I'm a Lord of the Rings one, so I get that. Um but as you know, we love both our fantasy and sci-fi here. Um, so except 
the fact of one ring to rule them all. I've got 10 in my hands right now, so I'll go. See, then you can rule 10 planets. You're not. Have they been touched by Sauron? Have they been touched by Sauron? No, but I can make a case for other things. <laughs> okay. Okay, so what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Fantasy, really, uh, but science fiction was a kind of gateway drug to other things. Um, and there are things that are very much on the cusp of stuff. I mean, when you when you start thinking about things like Pern or even Dune, for that matter, it's like, is it science fiction or is it fantasy? It's science fiction because of the trappings, but the basic underlying political stuff is almost fantastical world building. So, you know, it, it kind of blurs. Yeah. No. Space fantasy is a thing, but there were space they fantasy before. Like pretend that there is a firm divide. It's like talking orthodox versus not orthodox to JAR, but... I'm just saying uh, if it's got dragons, it's fantasy, Doc. It is not, but okay. Thank you. See, she knows what she's talking about. Next, you're going to tell me Pern was sci-fi and not fantasy. Yeah, Pern was, was weird, but yeah. Mostly this is an excuse, the whole dragon thing, because I know Chris Fox actually writes sci-fi uh, sci with space dragons, is an excuse to tell her that, <laughs> is to tell Doc she's wrong about Pern just to get under her skin. <laughs> I'm not wrong about Pern. You're just defective. You get real defensive of Pern. It's like you and Anne were besties or something. A little protective. It's okay. So we when I was doing your bio, and if you if you want to read an interesting one, people, I we will link it in the show notes, but you should read hers. It was it's definitely interesting. But you mentioned that you're you're a duchess, or they call you the Duchess of Fantasy. So is this like a title that your fans gave you just because they like Duchess? Is this a David Weber-esque fandom type title or the SCA as Doc likes to refer? Or are you legitimately a duchess? legitimately a duchess um back in a long time ago a long time ago in the galaxy far far away um in the medieval days of the country where i was born there was a massive major medieval battle and one of my ancestors acquitted himself with enough honor and ability that he was rewarded with a dukedom by the reigning king at the time the dukedom has long since disappeared, but the coat of arms still exists, and I'm the lineal descendant, so I am the Duchess. That is awesome. Hence the uh, the hairpiece. I like it. Do you wear it to all official gatherings? Yes. I'd wear it all the time. What? I'm eating cereal? Let me wear my hairpiece. If I had yeah, one. Are. I, 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 I walk corridors at cons with a tiara, so yeah. All right. So... Now that uh, I've got that uh, that's rabbit trail out of the way and Doc has done mocked me at least once, the show can officially start. So what is your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? Was it um, reading a, a specific book, watching a, a television program, playing, playing some sort of game in the space? Does Hans Christian Andersen count? I think so. I would say fantasy, yeah. I can see that. I started doing mythology and fairy tales when I was four or five. And things just escalated from that. Um, no. I kind of segued into, I mean, a fairy tale. I just did a whole collection of something I call fractured fairy tales, which is a collection of stories that are that have got fairy tale-ish roots. 
either retellings of or new stories that are fairy tales or something that has a fairy tale atmosphere around it. But basically, you grow up in those in those boots. Um, you tend to walk seven league miles as a matter of course. And I'm just kind of, you know, part of my part of my roots is fantasy and mythology and folktale. And this is just what I got thrown into at the deep end of when I learned to read and I never I never really graduated away from it. And then once I started picking up actual books by actual authors who are writing spec fic as opposed to just pure fairy tale that was written before I was before I existed. And I it it just it was a natural segue. I just went straight into that. Okay. So now I have an idea, Doc, for an actual fi another fireside chat about what makes a fairy tale a fairy tale. And simply having been around for a while probably isn't good enough for the classification. No. No. Because right, if people are writing new ones like Miss Alma, then that's... Uh... You would be a fairy tale then. Okay. Uh, so that's going to be something <laughs> I'm going to put you on scheduling, Doc. Because if, if you guys don't know, dear listener, Doc is now taking over the scheduling so I can harass people and, and send requests for interviews and, and the like. But we're not here to talk about that. So just pencil that in your calendar, Doc. And if she forgets, dear listener, pester her relentlessly, as you do. Uh, so what is it about speculative fiction as a genre that you like? The ability to tell the most bitter truths by wrapping them into something that most people don't realize it makes people understand things they don't want to know about. Okay. That, that's an answer that we get a lot, the, uh, the endless possibilities, essentially, uh, of the, the field. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you writing stories that you've mentioned? You've been telling stories since as long as you can remember, but what made you cross the divide for the first time and say, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to encapsulate it on paper for, from, for eternity? I wrote my first poem when I was five. I wrote my first story when I was six. I wrote my first novel when I was 11. Wow. I've never I've never really, you know, started writing. I just did it. Um, there was a piece of paper and there was a pencil and I just did it. It was just something that was, I've got a source that's inside of me that's always bubbling somewhere and I just wrote it all down. <laughs> that's just what I did. Okay. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So are there any specific formidable moments that you feel like shape you as a storyteller? The fact that I lived everywhere and anywhere. And um, at once it was a question of having the deepest root of all by not forgetting where I actually came from. But there's also the, uh, the, collateral damage of never being one place long enough to put down proper roots to begin with. So I learned how to root shallowly in places where I lived so that I wouldn't hurt myself by pulling myself up when I went off again, which happened with depressing regularity. We moved a lot when I was a kid. Um, so um, that kind of restlessness or rootlessness coupled with a very deep sense of self um, is something that finds its way into my characters. Okay. So that, that's a, a good um, motivator, that the, the vagabond spirit, as they say. 
I don't think they call it the vagabond spirit, but that's okay, Jr. I do. So, I'm people, so I count. No, you. You can say nomadic too. A person. Okay. Maybe I have multiple personalities. You don't know. Oh, I think by now I've met them all. Ah. Uh, <laughs> So transitioning from some of the writing and into things from a fan angle, have you had any cool fan art submitted to you yet? Yeah, um, there was a, a person I don't even know um, who just happened to be in deviant art somewhere, and I got an image. Um, I wrote a novel called The Secrets of Jin Shei, which involved nine, count them, nine protagonists. And if ever you feel the urge to write a novel with nine protagonists, go and lie down until the urge goes away. <laughs> uh, but this person actually came up with a sort of anime type rendition of all the nine characters and she oh, kind really? of nailed, she nailed the fundamental line of of each character type that was up there and it was just absolutely beautiful and i didn't know where that came from it just turned up in my emails like very diffidently look i hope you don't mind but i drew your girls that is awesome, and that's wonderful. Do you still have that picture? Oh, yeah. Are you allowed to share it? Uh, possibly, but I don't know how. It's on my computer. <laughs> I'd have to look for well, it. The, the reason I ask is because it sounds so awesome. If people signed up for your, your newsletter, would you be able to share it at some point in the near future? Yeah. Okay, we'll do that. So uh, we will link not just to her social medias. I will find a direct link if you want to sign up for her newsletter, dear listener, and, uh, and you can see all the things because I'm going to sign up too. <laughs> so you can join JR on the newsletter bandwagon, but has anybody asked for your uh, autograph? Yeah, quite a few people. Um, I do a lot of book signings, so people tend to ask me for signing books and what have you. But there was one time that, that I, um, again, speaking of the sort of same book, I don't mean to, but it sort of turns out that way. I did a book signing for Secrets of Jinshai, and it's a story that's inspired by Imperial China. And there was one woman who came up when I did a book signing, uh, a white woman, um, sort of 30-ish or late 30s maybe, not old, not young. But she came up and she asked me to sign the book to her daughter. And I said, sure, what's her name? And she gave me a Chinese name. And I looked up and said, oh, and she said, oh, no, she's adopted. And so I signed the book to her daughter under her Chinese name. And she said, thank you so much. I'll keep this for her until she's ready for it when she's old enough to read it. And I kind of went, oh, wait, how old is she now? She said, <laughs> four. she bought the book from me, signed to her daughter to give her when she was maybe 12 or 13 so she could read it, but she was four. I practically cried. I, I could see that. I could totally see as a parent doing some of that. I have some books squirreled away for when my son is old enough to actually read them. So, because you want to share that. And it's there's memories and emotions attached to it. And uh, so, yeah, I get that. That's a wonderful honor, though. But just the idea that, that your book is being squirreled away as a future treasure for a child who doesn't even know it's coming yet is just, it's just, yeah. You know, and it, it must mean that they thought you nailed it on the culture of the uh, imperial China. If well, at least one other person uh, reading it, an older Chinese woman who was uh, just sort of sat there in a the corner listening very carefully as I read the, the excerpt that I did from the book, and she came up afterwards to get her book signed. And she says to me rather diffidently, There's a part of me that really wishes you were Chinese. 
Well, that's a very big compliment. I, I took it as such, yes, because obviously I managed to get something right enough for her to give me the compliment of saying that she thought that I could have been part of the culture. So that's that is that's huge. So, um, have you ever spotted someone reading one of your books out in the wild? Yeah, um, on the way to a con um, that I happened to that particular time, I happened to have been gone as a Mr. Connor hat. And um, there was a person who was sitting in the hotel foyer when I came in to register for the con who was reading my book. And I'm kind of going, mm -hmm. that's awesome. <laughs> so, um, can you tell mm -hmm. us a funny or weirdest fan interaction? I think you just told us probably one of the most touching ones ever. Well, there was one time I was traveling somewhere and I was in a plane and I got talking with somebody who uh, was sitting next to me or behind me or beside me or somewhere. And I just got talking to this woman. What do you do? I write. Okay. Okay. Gave her a bookmark. Um, we touched lives and we went away again. About a year and a half later, I get an email. I just read your book and I wish I had known about this book really when I first met you at that plane because it is amazing and now I really wanted the ability to have been able to, to talk to you about it but damn it <laughs> this was the review mirror so but it was actually unexpected and completely out of the blue to get an email from someone you met more than a year ago who not only remembered who you were but had actually gone and got the book that was on the bookmark had read it and then taken the trouble to actually ferret out the right address and to email you to tell you about it that's awesome it also means that your uh, money spent on those bookmarks was worth it because it got you a fan absolutely and um, so, my, my husband used to kind of embarrass the hell out of me. He would wander up to random people at airports who had just happened to be reading a book, any book, whatever, and he just hand them, here, have a bookmark. And I'm like, oh I, I always wonder when I when we had those and we would give them out if anybody actually read them or if they just tossed them in the recycle bin. <laughs> so it's good to know that at least once it worked for someone. <laughs> So, uh, right. So this is where we talk about everything that Alma Alexander has written. So could you give us the Reader's Digest version of your uh, body of work? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I've got almost three million words in print right now. So that's going to be a bit of a Reader's Digest difficulty. Um, I've got I've, I write across the gamut of things. In fact, my uh, my my usual comment was you never write the same book twice, uh, which is a feature not a bug as far as i'm concerned but i i think that's a good thing yeah but i've written i've written epic fantasy or high fantasy that's like pure secondary world stuff um i've written contemporary fantasy which is our world with just a scattering of fairy dust i've written science fiction both both humorous and serious um i've written uh, i don't know how you would call it urban fantasy it had to do with werewolves but Honestly, it's not really that kind of thing. Um, but those are the books in which I finally used my education. I've got a master's degree in molecular biology, and I wrote a book positing a complete genetic basis for the weir critters, which is possible. Okay, I need that series just to give to the uh, the relatives I have who have backgrounds in statistics and biology. So the weir chronicles. Okay. 
they're, they're out in omnibus edition right now, so you can get all three books um, in one one fell swoop. You can pick it up. All I'm just saying was when I was in college, the professors weeped with joy when I finished the required minimum class for them, and I never had to come back into their lab. I um, actually wrote my fat epic fantasy, secondary world fantasy, while I was in the lab waiting for experiments to cook. And I fondly assumed that my professor didn't know. He did. He didn't mind. But <laughs> it was just. <laughs> Incidentally, he wrote me a foreword for the, the Weir book. Um, oh, wonderful. My, my master's uh, degree supervisor, he wrote me a foreword for the book and basically said the science is as good as it gets. That's awesome. So now I'm gonna to have to check it out. Is the uh, is it in audio as well? The Weir Chronicles, no. Um, I haven't got around to getting those in, in audio yet. But the ebook and paperback right now. All right, I'm gonna have to dust off my Kindle. That sounds interesting. I probably will not understand any of the science people, but no, I'm gonna get so many questions from Jr. All right, so. <sighs> Uh, was that everything? I, I know I interrupted you a little bit because we got intrigued by the Wear Chronicles. Um, I've also got a bunch of short story collections um, of various sorts. Uh, we already mentioned the fairy tale one, which is the most recent one. But before that, um, I, I had uh, a book that is called Untranslatable, which basically uh, is it, on the provenance of the fact that in in some languages there is a single word that in English needs a sentence or a paragraph to explain uh, because it's just the kind of concept that English minds don't wrap themselves around. So I basically put together a collection of stories that that linked to these words and and I don't know how to explain it, but explain these words in terms of fiction. And every story has the word behind the story and then the story behind the word kind of commentary at the back of it. Um, and then there's another set of collection stories, the Val Hall books, um, which is uh, stories about the superheroes third class, uh, a retirement home for the superheroes third class. And um, superheroes third class are basically differentiated from superheroes of the first class, which are basically your random gods who can't help being what they are because they are divine and they'll just shoot your your you know, Thunderbolt, because they can. Um, superheroes second class are people who are nominally human, but they've got enough money to throw at the problem. They've got uh, the tchotchkes and the, um, the, the supercars and what have you, and they can deal with things that way. Superheroes third class are the people, ordinary people, who may not even know that they are superheroes until some something, some event, some trigger shocks them into that superpower ability. And um, these guys end up in Val Hall, which is a retirement home for superheroes, third class. Okay, I like that. <laughs> so while all of that sounds fascinating, today we're here to talk about your new book, uh, The Second Star. So where did you get the premise for this universe? How'd you come up with the idea? Was it uh, psychedelics, a Ouija board, overindulging in chocolate cherries? I woke up one morning with a sentence in my head and the sentence was, a soul is like a starfish. And I kind of said that to my husband, who just looked at me and said, you're weird. Uh, but, <laughs> but then he, he he started talking to me about it, as he did. Um, and things just got embroidered on then. It was a, what if this, and oh, here, and if, what if we turned left at this juncture? And what what happened if I, and before I knew it, I had, I had 160,000 words of novel. 
and I didn't quite know how I got there, but it all started with that stupid starfish. <laughs> um, okay. I actually referred to that book as a starfish book for the longest time. That's an interesting way to start it. Um, starfish are interesting creatures. Star, starfish, I get it. So uh, before we dig into those, we're going to take a moment to, to look at that glorious cover art. So can you tell us how you came up with the uh, the idea for this image? And I'm going to be frank, all I see is the second star because I'm colorblind. I don't see anything behind it. So I'm going to let Doc uh, talk about what's on that for us real quick well, if, uh, if you're listening. I think it's an awesome one. It's definitely, it reminds me of some of like um, where the crawdads sing, but in blue tones because of the river and at the bottom and the mountains and then all the beautiful starscape and then you kind of have that face within the starscape i think is really neat and it reminds me of um like the rowan and some of the early classics with that the idea was mine the rendition was not i don't have the requisite uh, photoshop skills to achieve this um, but i kind of threw out this is what i wanted i wanted a starscape and i wanted in like a, eyes looking from from it and and I knew enough people who knew what they were doing that they came up with this cover and I was really happy with it. It's beautiful. I love it. So. All right. Um, yes. <laughs> you good? Can you follow all that? Yeah. I just can't see all that, but it's okay. That's the, the joy of being colorblind. I, um, if I sell enough books, I'll buy some of those glasses and see if they really work. That makes you see colors again. But um Anyway, this is going to be a moment. I think where there we... are shrooms that do that too. There's what? Nothing. Shrooms that do that, yes. But Doc, we're we're a family friendly show, so we we just say no, just like Nancy Reagan taught us to. Um, so we are going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man or woman, Doc. Since you're going to interrupt me if I don't say it that way, and uh, and pause for the commercial interlude. In a galaxy tied together by the magic of the elite jump mages. New graduate Damian Montgomery is in search of his first assignment. Without elite blood ties and high-powered connections, he can't find a ship to sign on to. A pirate attack left David White with a damaged freighter and a dead jump mage. The dead mage's grieving father blacklists him and makes it impossible to hire a replacement. Without a mage to jump his ship, he's stranded. When their desperate needs meet, Damien is drawn into a conflict with the most powerful criminal organization in the galaxy and draws the attention of the Mage King of Mars himself. Starship's Mage, the first book in a science fantasy series by Glenn Stewart, is available on Kindle and Audible. All right, thank you for sticking with us. And uh, we, we appreciate it. So we were just talking about the glorious image that is the cover for the second star. And now, Doc, let's dive into talking about the book. Oh, can you give us uh, your 30-second elevator pitch for this book? I'll read you the first couple of sentences on the back blurb, which kind of works as that. The Parada had been lost for almost 200 years before they re recovered the ship, drifting in Stygian interstellar darkness and brought her home again. But that was not the miracle. The miracle was that the crew was still alive. That was also the problem. Six people went out to the stars. More than 70 personalities came back. I might have dated that girl. Wait, what? <laughs> well, we know it wasn't run by the Navy. 
Yeah, so that actually was the blurb that uh, when I was reading the show prep that made me buy the audiobook because it uh, it looks interesting. So, so essentially, the premise of this thing is that this particular crew came back shattered and they came back in secret because nobody wanted to explain to the world what happened to these people. Um, and um, the the whole story hinges on um, them bringing in the cavalry, if you like, to figure out if this was something that happened to them in particular, or if this is something that would happen to anybody who happened to set foot in a starship, in which case that was the end of the Earth's starfaring career right here and now, because we can't do this to people. Uh, and if it was in any way curable, because how do we let these people out again if we can't, you know, corral them, <laughs> if you like? Yeah. So um, there's an interesting uh, conundrum that was being faced by uh, a world which should have welcomed these people back as heroes, but which didn't really know what to do with them. So how accurate, you mentioned the time dilation, and I know that happens, but how much calculation did you do to the effect of the time dilation based on where they went, how long they were gone? Or did you just sort of use that as a premise and went forward? No, I actually did. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this, but there is an ongoing, for many years now, um, astronomy workshop for writers called Launchpad that's run by Mike Brotherton from Laramie. And he is an astronomer, a professional astronomer who, who also happens to be a science fiction writer. So he put together this idea as a, as a week, week long crash course in astronomy for people who are doing spec fic. And, you know, it's one of those things you go in there and they'll, they'll just, I mean, by the end of that week, my brains were leaking out of my ears, but I knew so much more about everything than I had ever thought I could be possible to know. And one of the things that they did delve into, and I had help with the tower calculations by the people who actually are professionals in the field. They helped me calculate exactly how what, what the time dilation factor would be and how it would work. So that's accurate. That is cool. So uh, one more time, if they're, um, so I can I put know, it in the show yeah, notes. I wasn't qualified to go. It's okay. What was the name of this program? And I'm going to link, I'm going to find some links and throw Launch that in the show pad. notes. It was the most amazing week of my life. I couldn't, I mean, by the time I came home again, I was buzzing. I was, I couldn't, I could barely talk coherently. My head was so stuffed with things. So uh, the way I learned my science for my, my sci-fi novels is we have the uh, Langley has the space museum and I go for the course set for the toddlers and they explain it to me so I can understand it. It works for me. One of the things that they did in Launchpad is that they took the entire class up to a telescope up 9,000 feet up in the mountains up above Laramie. And the air is pretty thin out there and the stars are very close and they've got an, uh, a dome of telescope dome and oh my god the experience of standing inside the planetarium when the dome opens and just stars come pouring down at you it, it's the most transcendental moment that i can possibly imagine you just you get this opening gateway you literally feel like you're pouring yourself out there it's it's the most you have, apply, you have to apply to go to, to this and you have, there are a certain amount of criteria you have to be a writer of the stuff but oh my god if you are and if you're interested in this go because this is the most amazing thing you'll ever do okay 
I will try to see if I can find that and see because it sounds interesting. JR, I'll tutor you for all the prereqs ever and everything if you go, but that they do let other people go, so you'd have to be somewhat social. No, I don't talk to people. <laughs> I'm anti-people. All right, Doc, keep the show moving. But but making fun of you is part of the show. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> so We've talked about the 30-second elevator pitch, and it sounds like what really is making your series, normally we ask people, what makes your story special and stand out? But it sounds like what's really standing out is the fact that, you know, you did all this hard science for it, and all these math math calculations and everything, but also the, the mental health aspects. Is there anything else you'd say that really makes it stand out in science fiction? Well, science fiction in, in theory, uh, the, the, the whole going out to the stars thing has always been my my kind of dream. And if I hear about things like opportunity out on Mars and I kind of start thinking, oh, the sweet creature, I want to kiss it. Um, I, and my parents have never understood why I couldn't just stay in this world, but I've always been out there somewhere. Um, the idea of coming home, though, is a big part of this book uh, and whether it is in fact possible to ever come home again mm -hmm. or to come back to the same place that you thought you were or thought you wanted to be in but something either it or you have has changed some fundamentally enough for that connection to be difficult to reestablish, and that's a part of this uh, storyline really it's it's a story of going out into a miracle and then coming home or trying to come home one of the personalities that turned up much to my delight because it gave me the the permission to to kind of go slightly uh, poetic and lush which is my strength anyway but one of the personalities that came back was one that just refers to itself as the poet okay and the poet has a lot to say about coming home. Okay. That um, sounds interesting. So did you um, did you write any actual poems then for this story or did you- No, uh, they're not months? poems. I'm just saying that the poet thinks poetically and the, the prose that he says, that the, the way he speaks is looking at the world through a poetic lens. Okay. All righty. So, Doc, the next question is yours, I believe. I, I know. I was going to ask, what tropes do you really uh, use in this and play with in Second Star? Because there's some people who love tropes, certain tropes. I'm not sure I work in terms of tropes. Um, I write the story. If the tropes turn up, then they're welcome, but I don't go looking for them kind of thing. That's fair. Okay. Um, all right. Well, then the fun question. So um, you mentioned that this is obviously um, science fiction because the cover and space opera. So are there any other subgenres that you feel like this story fits into? It's been called a psychological thriller. <clears throat> okay. I can see that. All right, so now on to the story itself. So uh, I don't think we've ever had 70 main characters before. Did you make a flow chart to like track that? 
actually, um, I have a very peculiar brain. I kind of keep that not necessarily after I, I don't keep it after I finish the book, but while I'm writing a book, it's all in here. It's all in my noggin. Um, I very rarely write things down in terms of uh, summaries or, or I'll occasionally draw a timeline if I need to, just in case I need to know how old certain characters were when, but that's about as far as I'll go. The rest of it's all stuck in my head. Yeah, you mentioned with the, with the uh, I'm going to butcher the Chinese Imperial China story that nine main characters not to do it, but you wrote this novel, <laughs> Jin Che, you wrote this novel with essentially 70 main characters and that just blows my mind um you almost need a phd in character writing to try to figure that out but <laughs> let's talk about those characters so what makes the um six main characters of the crew unique in the crowded field of speculative fiction well um two of them happen to be twins and part of the the fear if you like is like okay we sent a pair of twins out there did that screw the pooch? <laughs> I mean, um, is, is there something uh, very specific about twinhood that may or may not have affected something that we didn't know about or weren't considering? Um, and as it happens, it's got something to do with it, but it might have been the trigger of, or one of the triggers of what happened out there, um, simply because uh, of, the, of the sort of mirroring of the minds of twins that happens. And the twins were a great deal of fun to write, really, um, because these two guys are, um, they're very alike in some ways, but they're very different in a lot of other ways. Um, and um, one of them actually is a Dungeons and Dragon aficionado, and he basically starts explaining to one of the, the main protagonist characters, the psychologist, about uh, the alignments in Dungeons and Dragons. and he comes up with the twins he definitely aligns them differently they may be twins but their dungeons and dragons alignments are not the same okay oh okay that's interesting so you might have, you might have picked up that i spent a lot of my misspent youth doing dungeons and dragons too nothing wrong with that um and i've met some of those guys that wrote that stuff so i, I it's interesting so does that cause uh, conflict with the twins then? Are, are the alignments such that they're polar opposites? Uh, no, like I said, they're alike in a lot of ways and it's very subtle. Um, it's a kind of a sideways slide. Uh, one of them just happens to be uh, more open to doing things for the general good where the other one is far more selfish and is essentially doing things so that his own well-being comes first. Um, there's just a subtle slight, sort of sideways slide between the way that they will think about things and the reasons behind which they will do things. Okay, that's that's intriguing. Now I've got even more reason to uh, to dive into the audiobook I just bought. So um, <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about your main characters. Were there any secondary characters that you you um, created that were especially memorable to you? Um, part of the uh, the fractured personalities sort of set up is that every single one of those six people has a, a child personality. 
And these child personalities form what they call the children's collective. And in one sense, um, they are the ones that understand most profoundly what is happening. But they are children and they don't have the, the, the vocabulary, the context to explain. Okay. So, so in, in, in a way that they're, they're the central kind of, they're the central split. They're the, the things that, that are the most, the kernel of the whole uh, personality is those children and they exactly what is going on. Okay, so the um, are are there any obvious bad guys that the characters have to um, to deal with in this story without any spoilers? Um, I like gray villains who are not necessarily just bad guys with a capital letter, but basically who do wrong things for the right reasons. And um, Martin Peck, who is the sort of military, uh, I don't know, <laughs> top command officer in, in charge of this thing, who does things by the book in one sense. Um, and he is, he can be one of those people who are, quote, just following orders and is willing to follow orders to places where most people would not be. But every now and again, he pulls back and he looks at things and he is not happy with where the orders are leading him. And he's an interesting fractured character by himself um, in one sense. He's trying to, to, you know, try to correlate the two halves of his own personality to try and be, try and be a human being and try to be a military officer, a career military officer at the same time um, and, and try to, to um, you know, balance out what he needs to do or what he needs to think and believe in order to make those two things make it a coherent single human being. <laughs> now, is he part of the crew that went missing, or is he like? He's part of the of the, the of the establishment, if you like. He's the he's the head honcho in charge of the establishment, uh, who is overseeing the, the entire. Uh, compound where these six have been incarcerated and while it is being decided what to do with them and he gets into a lot of conflict with my psychologist who basically screams at him that they are not experiments they are not petri dishes full of interesting microbiological specimens they are people <laughs> yes so do you actually see them when they're in space as far as like the trip or is this all post um post-FTL flight and we just deal with it once they're back. Yeah, this is a fallout, really. I mean, you, you get a little bit of uh, flashback and you know, what, what was going on and then some explanations about what they saw and what they thought happened. But the gist of the action is here back on terra firma when they came back. So do you plan on writing a novel to tell the story of them in space? Um, no, but I may or may not write the rest of the story. Um, I, no, that's that's not what I meant to say. There's no rest of this story. This is a standalone book, but there may be ramifications that carry on at the, at the end of this novel, which may or may not warrant a second book in the series. I'm thinking about it. Okay, that's fair. All right, Doc, next question is you. 
So, um, if your characters ever, you ever met them in a back alley and they knew who you were and uh, everything that you put them through, how do you think you would fare with that? I wouldn't want to. Um, there's an artist friend of mine who drew a cartoon of me sneaking away from a group of people who are supposed to be my characters, all of whom are standing and with their arms crossed, glaring at me. <laughs> Sounds about right. That's awesome. So, um, well, at least at least with the poet character, you'd have a chance because you, you've on your bio on your website you say you can actually write a sonnet in under five minutes. So you could just wow them with your poetry skills, and you might get away with that one. Yeah, the other you, 69, you're in trouble. You can blame my grandfather for that. My grandfather was a poet. Um, he started reading me sonnets when I was four. And by the age of five, I knew, I told him in my little childhood list, Grandpa, that one doesn't scan right. And he said, of course it doesn't. And he go, don't be silly. And then he checked it and he didn't. I, didn't, I had osmosed the structure so deeply that I was able to not so much count the syllables, but it felt off. The meter was off, and I picked it up at five years old that something was wrong with this meter, and he just, you know, okay then, <laughs> okay. Um, but this is where my my sonnet uh, roots are because I I got that so early and so young that it became something I was, if I may borrow the metaphorical uh, kind of parallel, I was suckled on poetry. That's. That really kind of neat. Um, whereas I, my my poor mother would try and read Doctor Seuss to me, and I'd throw a fit. Uh, you are a much more agreeable child. Um, so, with you, the bar is low. With you as the base, doc. You know what, Jr. I still put up with you, so it's all okay. Um, I've heard stories from your brother. I'm just saying. You know, it's okay. Remember, you have to put up with me because otherwise, you're lost. Um, so in this universe, uh, you know, for specfic that the world can be as much of a protagonist as any of the characters, can you tell us some about the world you created? Is it near, near future? Well, it's about 200 odd it? years from, um, set very far. It, well, depending, depending on when Parada was launched, which is not right now, so give us another 20 years, um, but it's 200 years after that. So it's kind of sort of near future Earth. But I also hint quite heavily in the book that something happened to us. Um, there is a lot of references to uh, climate issues that, for example, the Middle East is uninhabitable. Um, okay. Little hints like that. Um, the, the reason that we took so long to send the second ship out was because we had enough to deal with right here on the ground. Um, and we didn't really, you know, think about doing anything other than survive. Um, and in, in this world, uh, air travel is pretty much non-existent um, and is is reserved for people who have enough clout and or money to pay for it. And it's not like today when you buy an airline ticket and you hop into a plane and you just go off on a holiday in Hawaii. And it doesn't happen in this world. Okay. So it sounds like this is kind of a more grim world. In one sense. Um, 
there is a there's a distinct reference of there's a well-known park in um, in Istanbul where a lot of uh, where, where the, the 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 habitat is if you like um, and they go out into Istanbul city there's a very heavy hint that the shoreline is not what it used to be um, there's a park that has got the same name as the very well-known park in Istanbul but it's got two appended to it um, as in park two as in this is not the original park that used to be here this is what happened when the sea rose and swallowed up a lot of what was here before so okay go ahead doc no that's i, I find it interesting <clears throat> so normally we would ask you what's next in the series but you mentioned that this is a standalone and you haven't decided uh, if you're going to write more books. So what would it take from your fans and readers of this book for them to say like, no, we definitely want a second book to convince you to do that? Is there like a threshold of of sales that you're looking for? Uh, is, do you have a, a do you have a mark that says, if I get this, then it's definitely something I'm going to do or do you just let the muse take you? No, I don't. I don't work like that. I don't write to market or sales or that. If I think that there's a story that, needs to be told there, then I'll tell it. I've got to make up my mind about that. I need to um, to think about what, I, I need to think about where this might go and if it warrants another novel in the same context. Okay. So you've talked a lot about this group that made the first FTL trip um, and things went wonky. So if you had the opportunity to take one of those trips, would you take it, leave terra firma? Oh, in a hot second. Okay. Yeah, we do. Uh, so I have some friends that are writers that say they would go on the second trip when they knew everything was safe. Oh, I don't know. Um, I, give me a chance to go into space. I'd probably go, give me, where? Where do I go? Okay. So we know that every, you did mention that this is set sort of uh, near future as far as technology is concerned. So we know that every literary universe, at least the good ones, have internally consistent rules for science, technology, and magic if it include, is included. So what sort of tech can we expect from these books besides the FTL spaceship? There are a lot of things that people might find familiar, um, but there is, for example, a, a system of cars that, that exists in Istanbul. You can basically call a car and you can program where you want to go and the car is going to take you there. Um, naturally, this is hackable and gets hacked um <laughs> there are uh, there are a lot of things like for example phones or what passes for phones in in that world that, that people will find very familiar in, in using the way that we use ours uh, but again uh, there there is a, a certain hinting in that we might have been further along or might have had more flashy technology if we hadn't gone through a period of stepping back, trying to figure things out, trying to survive whatever was going on um, at the time. We were too busy. We had our hands full trying to keep our lives afloat um, as opposed to inventing really cool flashy tech. Okay. So do you think you'll ever go backwards in time in this universe and write the, the cataclysmic event, whatever that might have been? Or are you satisfied that you've explained it enough in the story? I don't think I'm going to go backwards. Um, there is, there is, there are strong hints in, in this book about what happened, but um, I didn't. I mean, there's a there's a particular uh, conversation that happened at one point where they're referencing things like 
quote, in history, um, as opposed to, I mean, these guys have come back after 200 years and two, for them, 200 years have never happened. So our history of those 200 years is something that they have to learn as a brand new thing. It's, it's something that never happened to them. Um, and there's a conversation between two people who were uh, part of this world while those guys were gallivanting the stars and they kind of reference historical events. And it's a mixture of things that we, you, me, and the, the rest of the readers out there will recognize it as our historical events. But then there are things that are in there which are references historical events which haven't happened yet. Okay. So you had to have obviously invented, invented some tech because we have FTLs um, in this universe. Is there anything that you have in, invented that you want for daily use? Well, first of all, it's not strictly speaking FTL. It's close to speed of light. Um, speed of light, the, the whole like, the whole problem here is that their, their ship was calibrated for a certain percentage of speed of light, but it malfunctioned and went faster um, and got closer to the speed of light than they anticipated, which is why time dilation was a factor. But they never actually crossed the speed of light as such. It's not really FDL as such. Um, but in terms of, uh, of of actual tech, I actually had a great deal of fun with one of the characters who was a sort of, if you like, fixer, um, who sort of runs around dealing with things that other people need and gets them done. But he lives in a very uh, throwback kind of uh lodging where everything is very traditional until the fact until the moment where he waves his hand in front of a wall and the wall disintegrates and there's this massive computer console that he needs to do his work on <laughs> um, that, that, that might be fun to have in one's house I mean, there's just something that you don't realize is there when you look at it in a certain way and the whole thing just kind of segues into whatever you need to to have to you know, to deal with anything that you need to deal with. And this guy's got enough enough computer power to, I mean, when you think about it, when they said that uh, you could, the amount of computer power that it took to send people to the moon is now probably can be carried in, a, in an average person's pocket uh, in a smartphone. That kind of... Uh, <laughs> that kind of way that the, the, the technology was going to grow out of itself and into itself and change and become something else again. Um, our, our smartphones and our technology right now is probably going to segue into something like quantum computing at some point. I don't know what that's going to do in terms of the size of the things that are necessary to achieve the, the same results as we are, that, that we are kind of used to now. <laughs> So if you had that massive computer capability uh, for your daily use, how would you abuse it? Probably send people pictures of cats. <laughs> <laughs> Some things will never change. Cat memes will, will be eternal. That is what um, the internet is really for, cats. Or at least pet pictures. Pet pictures. All right, Doc, it's, it's, uh, it's on you. Put the yarn down. Don't stab anything anymore. I like stabbing things. All okay. So, did you create any aliens for your universe? Oh yeah, a great. Um, I'm not going to say anything because it's going to be a massive spoiler. But um, 
there is an alien in there who um, who who has a, a has his fingers in a lot of these pies, and who didn't necessarily mean to cause all this ruckus, but he's kind of feeling very apologetic about it. So how did you go about creating and designing your alien? Did you let nature inspire you as a, you know, with your educational background for certain, you have a lot of information to pull from, or was it, I need a guy who can do this? It wasn't, I need a guy who can do this. So the aliens um, have got their own ways of traveling out among the stars, which to us are, uh, like the ways of God passeth all understanding, um, which is why when the two worlds collided, things didn't go well. <laughs> okay. So what about when you're creating fantastical wait, wait. creatures? Is the, are the aliens secret or do does like humanity in general know about the aliens? No, they don't. That's part of the that's part that's part of the reason why they're keeping the whole thing under wraps because they don't know what they're gonna do about this if they once they actually find out what is happening and that there is alien influence in well involved um, then everything you know just takes a quantum leap into a different dimension and now what do we do what do we tell people about this do we tell them that these aliens are out there floating about and if so uh, that it's possible for them to affect people like this and there's all kinds of, um, of interesting decisions to be made and given the existence of such things okay so you've also written some fantasy and just because i'm curious it wasn't in the show notes but when you create fantastical creatures for the fantasy side of things with your fantasy worlds how do you create those do you do you use the sort of the same process or do you rely more on legend and lore well, segueing back to the, the weir critters, um, they, you know, you know, it's been said that there's no such thing as an original idea, but I think I actually might have had one um, because I don't think that there's anybody out there who's ever written about, uh, well, the different kinds of weir creatures, all right, but I don't think there's anybody else out there who has created a thing called a random weir. And a random weir is a weir creature who, they have a basic form in which, into which they will turn into, if all else being equal. But they've also got the gift and or the curse that if they happen to be in the wrong place in the wrong time and looking in the wrong direction at the right moment of their change, they will turn into the last warm-blooded thing that they will see. That could be interesting. Uh, which is one of the reasons why my character's mother is a weird chicken because of an unfortunate farmyard accident. Oh my that would God. be a horrible thing to turn into. Well, her, their, their father is a weird cat, which is difficult. If they both turn into their weird creatures at the same time in the full moon, you've got a cat and a chicken, um, it's not going to end well. So there's all kinds of things that need to happen there. But um, one of the problems that, that happens in, in these books is that um, the, the son of the family happens to be the oldest uh, unturned wear of his generation, and everybody knows that. He's very upset and moody and, and generally, um, you know, older teenager temperamental about this. Um, but he, um, the, the, way that they, the, the way that the randoms do this is that they will lock them, the creature, 
lock the person who's supposed to turn at a certain age uh, with the creature that they wanted to turn into as their basic form. So they were looking at that creature when they turn. So that becomes the form that they keep as a sort of basic, as a, as a baseline, if you like. And um, this particular guy um, tended to, he, he eventually ended up being locked up with a weasel for quite a while because he wanted to turn into a weir-weasel. Um, but um, nothing was happening and nothing was happening and nothing was happening. And he finally took matters into his own hands and decided to um, just get on with other things. And he, he well, the lichens in my world are very special. Um, they, they're kind of the next thing to villains, but they're not really. But the thing is, um, they also have sort of nefarious things happening in the background. Um, they are doing experiments with crossbreeding of weirs and see how that, that works in terms of what happens with the changes. And so he, in order to get, get into it or get behind it or to find out what is going on, he arranges to turn into a wolf. So he can, he can be the inside man, if you like. But he turns into the wolf at the time that he's sitting there um, while he's trying to figure out the weasel thing. So when they find out, that, when they see that there's a wolf in there instead of the weasel, and they said, well, what happened to the weasel? And somebody looks at the bloody smear on the wall, and I think I think we know what happened to the weasel. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm going to have to have her back to talk about this series because now I'm intrigued. But uh, we, we originally, Doc, this is all your fault. Uh, I don't know how you answer. Give me five minutes and I'll figure it out. So, be before we, you know, let you go because uh, I'll look cover doc. Hold on, I'm gonna put that on the big screen. Give me just a second. All right, that looks intriguing. I like the cover. So, are you looking, doc? Put the needles yes. down. Stop stabbing me. I, I will stab you. So, I like the cover. It's a neat cover. It is. It is. So was there anything about the second star that we didn't ask you before we wrap this up that, that uh, you want to tell us about? Yeah. Last year, it um, ended up as the finalist for the Imagine Award, which is one thing. Congratulations. But it also ended up as the finalist for the Washington State Book Award. Oh, nice. Which, uh, given the fact that it's a genre novel, um, was quite an accolade. Yes. That is good. Um, so, dear listener, before we let you go, we would be remiss if we didn't remind you that your thoughts matter, too. Uh, we'll assume you're readers if you're listening, because that's who we talk to. So remember to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. And rumor has it uh, that if she gets 100 reviews, she will not turn into a wear chicken. Rumor has it. So, <laughs> Doc... What are you thinking about what? chicken recipes now? I can see your mind moving. I am not. I was more thinking that might be your inner spirit animal. You no, mine is quite definitely a wolf. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> bears might be a chicken. I, mean, I actually got, there's a place that exists about an hour away from me, which I didn't know until quite recently, and it's a wildlife sanctuary, and they offer encounters with wolves. They've got a whole pack of wolves there. So, of course, the first wow. thing they did was I kind of, fell over my you know, myself getting there to try and get this happen. I've been there twice now. I've been kissed by a wolf. Oh. 
that's kind of cool. So uh, if the listeners wanted to find out more about you, um, can you tell them how they can do that? And as usual, dear listener, the links will be in the show notes. Well, I have a website, which is www.almalexander.org. Not .com, because that got hijacked by a Chinese pet food company. Um, .org. <laughs> don't ask. I don't know how that happened. But if you go to .com, you're going to find some really interesting stuff. So don't, um, go to .org. Um, that's, uh, the first thing you're going to see is my, my book table with all of my books on it. So you're welcome to go and, and browse uh, through my entire oeuvre, if you like. Um, and um, you can probably find the rest of my online presences from there, the Twitter, the Facebook, the Goodreads, the Patreon, the, all the, the usual suspects are probably linked from there. All right. And you can find us on our Twitter at uh, twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can join us over on the Facebook where all the shenanigans happen, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast where you can uh, join all the conversations talk to the uh, talk to us about various podcasts that we've done suggest new ones do all the things over there we have a website which is anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades and uh, you can also support us on that link with uh, for as little as 99 cents a month on a patreon style model or you can support us um, over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Never <laughs> surrender. As she takes a drink from her tumbler. Because she's got yep. not a problem. So, And it's got chemistry on it. I know. It's a lovely chemistry thing. Yeah. I take offerings. She's easy to bribe people. Booze and chocolate. Booze and chocolate. Ah, caramel. Caramel. Of caramel is good. I, I can't disagree with you there. Okay. But thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber, J.R. Hanley, I am Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place where we indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, t making JR learn how to read again, and, of course, pineapple on pizza. Heresy. <laughs> Heresy. <laughs> oh, no, See, she agreed with you. She no, agrees with not... me. Oh, yes. Maybe you science warped the back. brain. Maybe that's what it is. Science labs warp the brain. Mm -hmm.